Hey, g'day there, fellow humans. Mark LaBusk here for what will be the last of my guest episodes for 2022. Today, joined by an amazing human being, a spiritual human being, just an, an incredibly generous human being, Alison Cameron, who has a book out in the world now that you must check out called Leadership for the New Millennium. So we're going to talk about that and other human stuff and the depths that Alison goes to in the sharing, the way that she can articulate things that can appear to be complex and complicated in a in a simple and, as she says, a human form will blow your mind. So that's all I'm giving you now. Have a listen and we'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark LaBusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. I am absolutely delighted today, and it's been a long time coming, to be joined by an amazing human being, Alison Cameron. Alison, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Mark. And yeah, we were just talking about how good it is to catch up and we'll have to set these catch-ups in more regularly, podcast or no podcast. I agree. And um, (laughs) strangely, that's a conversation I'm having all too frequently with my podcast guest, which is starting to tell me someone who says that building deep connection and catching up regularly with people just maybe isn't eating his dog food like he should be right now. So um, I need to get better. But lovely to have you on. And this is an amazing topic we're going to talk about today because I, I, you've got your book out, which I've got here, and I, I love the book, Leadership for the New Millennium. I was fortunate enough to listen to you on your book launch speak at the start, and I was just like goosebumpy, and I had to get off and go and obviously, you know, because I hadn't read your book by then, so I was off to the what's next thing. But there's some incredible things that you can share today. But before we get there, I always start with first impressions. Because I just think there's a really there's a fascination for me and others and curiosity about well, when you first met someone, what did you think of them? So, or how did you feel? So you get to go first. I'm going to share mine with you as well. But what did, what were your first impressions of Mr. Labusque? Uh, I would say a genuine human being. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else to add to that? Because I like that. That's blowing a bit of smoke up my backside there. Were there any, any, other, any other words you want to include there too? No, not really. I mean, I have to say, Mark, and I think, you know, it's partly because of the the dog food of mine I've been eating for so many years. I don't tend to form judgments of people in my brain. Nice. So it's more a feeling that I go with. And so I can't really authentically pat it out. The feeling I got from you was genuine that you're yep. a genuine human. So for me, uh, and it's a feeling as well, calmness. Mm. It was just like, I feel like my heart rate's going down now. And I think my heart rate was going up a bit before because I was a little bit like, holy shit, Alison Cameron, like she's just a leadership guru and she's amazing. And then I got there and I'm like, oh, what a beautiful human being. So that was my first impression of you. And it hasn't changed. Yeah, well, I'm really glad that I was able to impart the sense of calm. Which is something I think we'll talk a bit about today with your with your book around the way leadership needs to be in the future. And there's some, mm. some words that I think haven't usually been associated with leadership that we'll get into. But before we yeah. do go there, let's now hear about the human being behind the microphone because it's something that I know listeners go, I want to connect with your guests. 
So can you just get a little bit out of them about them and where they grew up and sort of what's influenced them along the way, whether it's people, experiences, education. So why don't you go back to wherever you want, Alison, and, and share sure. with us. My goodness. And I think it's funny, you know, these these stories, and I talk a lot of, in my work with people about the story of self that we create, which can often actually limit us and it only ever is able to express a very superficial level of who we are as a human being. And I think often we become so identified with our stories that we we, we can lose the opportunity to expand beyond them. And so I guess as I share a story, and everyone will be aware of this anyway, it's only a, a, the flashpoints that I'll be able to share. Yep. And so I'll just share what kind of comes up for me. And, and that is, I was born in, in Adelaide, Australia, very, very blessed to be born in Australia. And I had quite a lot of privilege as a child. So, and when I talk about privilege, I'm not just talking about financial privilege, which is on the scales of privilege, it was, you know, far more than 99% of the world and anyone born in Australia should be able to say that. Yes. And however, not uh, huge on the financial wealth stakes by any means. However, uh, a lot of privilege in terms of the people I was surrounded with and the influences that I had at a young age. And what often comes up for me when I reflect on my childhood are two of the influences that, and I always get teary, <laughs> no matter how many times I talk about them, I can feel just that emotion coming up because I have so much love and gratitude for my grandparents and yeah. particularly my grandparents on my mother's side. My grandmother who survived the Holocaust, her parents not so lucky, they died uh, in the gas chambers. Uh, she survived miraculously, uh, had so many close shaves. And after World War II and after uh, she actually went into hiding in Holland for quite some time and settled in, in Amsterdam, her brother also survived. And she was looking to get better at her English and there was a posting for a mathematical physicist called Max Born, and anyone who's familiar with physicists on the who's listening will will know his name. His wife was hoping for a companion, someone to, you know, just be with her, help her a little bit around uh, the house. And so my grandmother got that posting in Dublin and met Max Born's top student, who was my grandfather. There you go. And. So he was a mathematical physicist. You'll see Max writing about him to Einstein in some of the books. I think one of them is Letters to Einstein. He was an absolutely brilliant human being, uh, not just from an intellectual perspective, and he was a complete genius, but also from a, a whole human perspective. And, and both of them, both of them embodied values that I think came through to me, not through sitting me down and telling me this is the right way to live, but just through absorption and being around them. My grandmother was all heart and unconditional love. And despite everything that she'd been through, had a huge amount of joy for life. And she was incredibly, incredibly good socially. 
And then my grandfather was an absent-minded professor um, (laughs) and was often in his study working through his next theorems. However, when I as a child would walk into his study, he'd put down what he was doing and uh, see choking up yeah, and give me that full attention and, and presence. So, and he also, you know, applied his his wisdom into social causes and environmental causes as well as my grandmother did. So, so I feel very blessed to have grown up around those influences, and and on top of the white privilege, of course, you know that it, those are the privileges that that I had as a child that that I'm I'm most grateful for. I love the um, thanks for sharing that, and and also the emotion. I can clearly see the emotion because I can see you, but the, the yeah. reading in your voice by absorption. I love that it wasn't sit you down and tell you this yeah. is what your value should be and. I think there's a bit of old leadership style in, in that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but it's about it's just about how people make you feel in a moment and how you and, and how yeah. you then either choose to absorb it or sometimes even unconsciously ab- absorbing things that come to you later on in, in life. So I think that's an incredible, incredible story. So talk a little bit then now about where you've got to now because I, I've been watching you from afar for some time and I just love the work that you do. What got you into this? let's say reframing, reimagining what leadership is. Yeah. Was there a moment or was it a series of moments along the way? Always series of moments, I believe, Mark. But the pivotal time in my life was around age 13, 14, when I was diagnosed with a mental illness, which was actually an existential crisis. I was actually in a psychiatric facility for some time. Wow. uh, Being treated for what people believed was something wrong with me. I was actually just asking a whole lot of deep questions. And one of the nurses in that hospital recognized that in his words, it was more of a spiritual emergence that was happening for me and uh, gave me some books to read. And I started to become very interested in human consciousness. I think I'd already had that interest, but I started to realize that there were many more things I could learn outside of perhaps what I'd so far been exposed to in life. Mm. And quite quickly after engaging with those studies and starting to apply what I was reading, I found, I guess, a, a very deep sense of purpose in life, which was I wasn't interested in taking the road commonly traveled of education, career, kids, money, picket fences. I was really interested in how could I as an individual potentially make a positive difference on this planet. And I would say since age 13, 14, then I've been a student of human consciousness, yeah, both formally and informally. And when I talk about human consciousness, that is related to individual consciousness, but I've also always been interested in collective consciousness. I've been interested in the consciousness of nature and our broader ecosystems, and also the way human consciousness manifests itself through the various human-created systems, so Mm. our education and political and justice and social and economic systems. And and so I I would say from that age I, I was quite a systemic thinker, and really the rest of my life has just been following that sense of purpose and and the various questions that have come up along that journey. 
That's so brilliant that you've that it happened at that age. It's also a little bit alarming, and I think about leadership and organisations here and go, someone was a little bit different. So we wanted to then we needed to categorise them. We needed to put them yeah. into a box, and the box was mental illness and yeah. this thing. And the beauty of someone else seeing something that was different and then, you know, read this, do this sorts of things, I just wish there were more of those human beings in the world. Yeah. And I think that's something that you are working on helping people perhaps to to see some of that. So let's talk a bit about, about the book and some of the key themes in the book. I get really pissed off with this. Yeah. Some people will be listening to this. Maybe they're caught a little bit in the old system. They're like, this all sounds a little bit soft and fluffy, warm and fuzzy and consciousness and the student of human consciousness and how does that make the bottom line any better? You talk about a need for more humane and soulful leadership. Mm. I'd love you to start there, Alison, and why is the world right now in need of this? So rather than answer that question, I'd like listeners just to pause and ask that question themselves. And if you've got a piece of paper and a pen in front of you, you might like to reflect and write your answer to that question. In your experience of life, as you look around planet Earth and the various systems you interact with on a day-to-day basis, whether that's the customer service person on the other end of the phone uh, for a, a large company that's uh, frustrating you <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, whether it is your workplace, whether it is seeing your kids go through the education system, whether you're looking at the current threats that are facing us as human beings, whether that be uh, the threat of nuclear war that's come back up again in recent times, whether it's the economic downturn that's real for you, whether it is the recent COVID situation that we've all experienced over the last few years. Why do you believe we need more humane and soulful leadership? Because I think that actually, if all of us ask that question, that sense of this is all soft and fuzzy goes out of the window because we can see what the lack of humane and soulful leadership does in our world. And it creates a whole lot of existential threats that we actually do not need to be facing. And in having to face them, we get really locked in this whole survival pattern as human beings unable to spend our time on this earth finding out more about who we are and realising and actualising that and and helping people who are in less fortunate situations perhaps to have more time and space to take that inquiry to the next level. Instead, we're just dealing in, in that survival level. And it may not even be the existential threats that are concerning you on a conscious level. It might just be watching your kids grow up and go through an education system where their unique gifts aren't necessarily honoured and and brought out or where we're seeing untold levels of depression and anxiety in not just adults but certainly young people, suicide rates rising, economic disparity on the planet not getting better but actually in, in COVID in particular overall that disparity became greater. I think actually for most of us, it's a really obvious answer. And we might not be able to necessarily reconcile with what the consequences for more humane and soulful leadership may be. And I think that's 
often what that defence mechanism within us is about. When we are invited to consider humane and soulful leadership, it's like, well, what's going to happen to the bottom line? What's going to happen to our economy? You're just a bleeding heart. Well, yeah, I am a bleeding heart and proud of it. And we need more bleeding hearts. But that kind of defensiveness, you know, actually prevents us from seeing what's possible. And it puts economic abundance as separate to self-actualization. In actual fact, I think what we'll see in every case study where true humane and soulful leadership has been exhibited, that that tends to create more abundance. Yeah. And it might mean that we need to make some economic sacrifices in the short term, right? And yet, I, I love the word sacrifice. I'm, I'm a big, big one for etymology of words. Most days of the week, I, I hear a word, I think, I wonder what the etymology or the origin of that word is. I get really interested in it. Mm. And sacrifice, if you look at the etymology of the word sacrifice, it's to make sacred. And humane and soulful leaders, they make the world sacred through the willingness to sacrifice. And that might be sacrificing a little bit of short-term profit for long-term sustainability and health and well-being of, of stakeholders. However, in doing so, most people, when they get there early enough, rather than putting it off until the existential threat is off their door, they actually open up whole new streams of financial wealth as well. So I think we need to, rather than look at how do we answer those questions, it's look at what are the paradigms that sit underneath or what are the worldviews that sit underneath those defensive statements against humane and soulful leadership that we might not even express verbally, but that come up in our own consciousness. But what about X or Y or Z and the fear of the consequences if we embrace a new way and just start to become really curious about those worldviews and paradigms. And if we unpack them, we'll see where they've come from. And, and they've come through theorems and, and mental models that have been embraced by certain parts of society, certain cultures in our, in our world. And we'll also see where their limits are yeah, and how they've limited us. Well, we, I don't know what to say now, but I'm going to say this to start with. I love it when one of my guests turns it into an interactive podcast. So thank you very much for turning the question back out to listeners. And I'm I'm sure they've had to think long and hard. The bleeding heart piece was interesting. Acceptance of being a bleeding heart. But the other word that came to mind for me at the time was a damn fine humane provocateur as well to get people <laughs> to think to think differently. And then the other thing that came to mind through the adaptive leadership work is that that significant fear of loss over the value of gain particularly mm. short-term loss. I'm going to quickly share a story. I'm talking to Alison, my Alison at the moment, two L's, Alison, yeah. my lovely wife. And um, at 55, I'm looking at it and going, I don't know how much money I earn. I have no idea. And I ask, ask Alison every now and again, how are we doing? She goes, yeah, we're doing pretty well. Cool. I've got to the point now, and this comes from a phobia as a young kid with parents who, as a building business, used to talk about a thing called an overdraft. Yes. And I remember one day them talking about it very clearly sitting in the car and asking him what it meant. And mum said, she wasn't trying to harm me with it, very gently said, it means we've got no money. Yeah. Now, from that day on to 40-odd years later, if I went to the hole in the wall and 20 bucks didn't come out, I'd be in a blubbering mess in the corner of the, yeah. of the, the building there. And so I've had a convo with Al lately going, 
like, how much money do I really need to earn? Yeah. And she goes, a bit less than what you do now, as in reasonable amount less. But I've also got this frigging corporate brain that keeps telling me 7% increase every year. Wow. And I'm sitting here going, what if I earned half of what I did now? Yeah. How am I going to fight that conflict between living a lifestyle and being able to do some other things versus what success has fundamentally meant for me. Does it, is that sort of making sense, what I'm saying there, in regards to what you're talking about? It makes absolute sense. And I think, you know, we can look at the lack of ability to sacrifice in the wider world. And I love the way you're turning that mirror on yourself, Mark, because we're all part of that culture, right? And this idea of in order to measure success, we need more and more and more. I remember years ago, I can't remember the author, but I can find it somewhere. And I read a book called Prosperity Without Growth. And I think that, you know, these are the kinds of ideas that are really useful for us to play with because this idea of exponential growth and bigger and better forever and ever, does it actually make our lives any better? And I think there's a certain point for most of us where it actually probably makes our lives worse. Yep. And it makes our lives worse as individuals, highly likely, at a certain point. And by worse, maybe it looks better on the surface, but perhaps it also corrupts our souls to some degree, that pursuit of more, more, and more. So it might not make our external lives worse, but it might make our internal yep. life less clear, uh, less congruent, less heartful. Uh, but also from a macro perspective, there's a point in which the pursuit of more, and we've seen this, you know, the the intention of capitalism and the fact that we would be lifting everyone up through this pursuit of growth has not borne out. And it's not necessarily because there's something wrong with capitalism, although I'd be happy to do a podcast, which is a critique of that. It's because of human greed, right? Yep. And it's because of the paradigms and the beliefs and the worldviews that have have actually brought a certain type of capitalism to life. And I think we can learn a lot from looking back at our history and for points in time and and particularly Indigenous worldviews where the pursuit of more for more's sake was not a part of the worldview or the paradigm. And in fact, it was actually seen as something to be ashamed of if you had more than others yep. and you weren't sharing that. I was just significantly educated by a couple of amazing Aboriginal folk mm. from Take New South Wales on all of those sorts of things on a two-part podcast. And it, Wonderful. it showed so many things. And then I read a book recently, Alison, called Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. And it's oh wow, it's like, holy shit, why aren't we learning from 60,000 years of that's right. Culture. And and yeah. I sort of get why we're not, because there's this thing going on, which sort of segues me into a, a bit in your book. There's a table in your book about life of achievement and life of soul and yeah. looking through that. And, and again, people, please get hold of this book, The Leadership for the New Millennium, because even that table in itself, when you look at that, you go, oh, sh holy shit, how am I actually living and what's more important to me? How does one move from one to the other? Or I also have this in my mind going, can we coexist in both? I think we have to. 
And I imagine some of your listeners have heard some of your podcasts where you might have had some adaptive leadership people on, so they might be somewhat familiar with the term subject object. Yeah. And I think for many of us, when we have been brought up in a capitalistic society, we've got, as you beautifully enunciated, Mark, this kind of corporate brain that says 77% each. I almost said 70%. There you go. There's your next goal (laughs) to create a bit more stress in your life. Um, The 7% increase. This paradigm around achievement is really strong and it's something we're subject to. What does that mean? It means that it does us. It has us in its grips. It's like a monster that we don't have control over and it determines a lot of our choice making and our thoughts and our ways of being in the world. And even if it's not driven from a capitalistic point of view, it might be alive in in a range of different economic paradigms, but it's more that individualistic focus. It's a smaller focus. It's a narrow focus. And perhaps it's also about actually getting the skills that we need to be effective in the world. And that's, I think, the healthiest expression of the life of achievement. It's in order to express my unique essence, what are the skills and attributes and information that that I need to assimilate or absorb in order to then have something to contribute to my broader society or my broader world or my broader community. And beyond the life of achievement, right, is where we've we've actually built those capabilities or we've seen beyond the paradigms or we've seen the limitations of the paradigms and we're curious about what lies beyond them. And for a lot of people, they get that curiosity and peek over the edge, but don't actually ever really jump in. And why is that? Again, it comes back to that sacrifice. In order to enter into the life of the soul, we need to be willing to sacrifice something to make our lives more sacred. And we might not actually need to physically lose the things that we think we're going to lose. However, we need to be willing to. Yeah. We need to be willing to let go of ways of thinking, ways of being, things that perhaps have felt safe in order to move out of that comfort zone. And then in the life of the soul, of course, we still have all of those skills and attributes and ways of working in the world that we built through that life of achievement. It's a wonderful foundation if it's healthy. And we're able to utilize those to be effective in living our purpose. And yet we are not controlled by the monster. Amazing. I'm thinking now about the old chestnut of self-awareness because you know you hear it a lot i think sometimes this word's being overused now and i I think i overuse it at times we need to build more self-awareness so (laughs) the importance of self-awareness in being able to sit in this space of maybe there's conflict and i'm not i don't know and i've always lived this way and it served me well and you're saying you want me to let go of some of that and i'm like yeah i do how does one heighten their self-awareness to be able to to exist in both of those places then? That's a really big question, Mark, because we could actually spend a week or a year or three years or three lifetimes exploring that. And self-awareness, I mean, it is critical. I think what's coming up for me to share, it might not be answering your question exactly. I think many people are self-aware to a degree. Yeah. So what that might be is, you know, I've got a friend who's been a smoker her whole life. She's a extremely effective human being in her world and her work. And she's extremely successful from a professional point of view. And yet her health is suffering. Now she's been aware that she's on a trajectory to 
uh, very challenging health problems for 30 years now. So she's had the awareness and she's actually quite a self-aware human being. So if you asked her what are the reasons for that, she'd probably be able to articulate it. Uh, She'd be able to talk about things that have happened in her life. And yet she hasn't been able to take the step to look at what she might be willing to sacrifice for greater longevity, for example. Yep. And it would probably be she'd have to change her whole lifestyle at this point, right? And the things that have made her comfortable or that have been a sense of identity for her would perhaps have to change to some degree, right? So so I think self-awareness is one thing and then having the willingness and the courage and developing the wherewithal to jump from self-awareness into self-transformation. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. Yeah. And unnecessarily stuck. And I think often also blame themselves for that when when a lot of that stuckness, yes, we have power over that. We can author our way through that. And yet a lot of the systems around us often actually want us to stay where we are because they are benefiting from where we currently are, whether it is relationships that if we start to shift and move from self-awareness to self-transformation, those people won't get what they've been getting from us to this point. There might be a whole range of economic benefits that people might not get from us, for example. There might be emotional benefits that other people might not get. And I think generally people can be very confronted by self-transforming individuals even if that self-transforming individual is just living their life. Yep. Because it shows people who are self-aware but haven't made that step into self-transformation that actually it's possible and that's confronting. <laughs> Someone recently said to me, you've changed, and I said, I know. And they didn't know yeah. what to say then because they wanted me to say, no, I haven't. So then they could go, well, you have, and here's the 10 things that have changed in you. And <laughs> as you were saying that, Alison, I'm thinking about Lisa Lay and, and Bob Keegan's yeah. work, immunity to change, the cognitive yeah. immune system, and that ability for that, I call it the uninvited guest who knocks on your door when you least expect it going, do you realise what you're about to give up if you transform? Yeah. yeah. And, and the big part of that is the identity. I, had, I, had, I did some work recently with a guy about smoking. Yeah. And when he got into his worry box, I think he was fluffing around a bit. And what it sort of came down to was that, that's what he's known for. He's that's right. He's the guy that has a smoke with the other guys, and if he doesn't yeah. do it, what's going to happen to me? Will they still talk yeah. to me? In the end, I said this to him. I think one of your problems is I just think you're a bit of a selfish prick. <laughs> I love that. And then he said this. I, I think you've nailed it, mate. And I go, yeah. I know I have, but that's the hold of this ability. I am self-aware. But to transform is going to mean that some other people are going to be disappointed at the version of me that turns up. And I think that's one of the things that reading your book is really helpful for is to go, this isn't a, it's like, it's, I love it how it's like, it's not all full of stories and stuff. It's not all this. It's like, I think people have got a, as I did when I read it, overlay your own stories in here and and, and use the framework that you see. So, so thank you. For that, it was a big question without notice, but you bloody nailed it. Mark, just on what you said about the fellow with his worry box, just coming back to what I, I shared at the beginning around story of self, I think that's a beautiful example of where our identity gets wrapped up in this is who I am. And at any time, 
our brain says, but this is who I am. Mm. That is the biggest signpost of opportunity for growth. Yep. And so, you know, this is something that we'll be doing a lot in the work that I launch next year is continuing to look at our current story of self and reimagine that at the next perspective of our growth. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what you're launching next year because now my curiosity meter went from about 100 to 300 just there and then. What, what oh. What's it involve? Oh, gosh. Well, actually, this has been on my to-do list for about a decade. So it's great that it's finally launching at the end of March. I was about to put a, a whole online leadership for the new millennium opportunity and experience together and then adaptive cultures took off and took all of my time for about five years. And I don't know if you know, Mark, but I actually resigned as director of adaptive cultures early this year. I think you told me that. Yeah. 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 And so created some space finally for these other projects that that have been brewing. So it's an opportunity to take a lot of the concepts of the book and help people to explore them and bring them to life in their own world and life. And and there'll be two offerings. The first is self-authoring. Yep. And so that's all the foundational pieces that we need in order to start a more conscious journey of self-transformation. And I imagine many people who come and, and get involved in this work will have already been on that that kind of journey. Some might be new for it. So, But wherever we're at in that process, it will help us to refine our fundamentals or our building blocks. And then the second offering is called self-transforming. And that's going to be an ongoing experience where, where we'll actually create content together based on people's questions, based on what's coming up for people. So it'll be a very emergent experience. Self-authoring is more, here are the frameworks and methods and, and an opportunity to be guided through them. Self-transforming is taking that in whatever direction it goes. And so that'll be a subscription, a yearly subscription for people that, nice. that people can join. Yeah. Is, does it also involve an opportunity for people to come together with any of this no. stuff? Is it's online? Yeah, good. Actually, the way it's designed and my group work in this space has always been very different. So you mentioned in the book, there's not a whole lot of stories and examples, and that's very unusual. Mm. And any editor getting hold of a book like that would say, you need to pepper this with stories and examples. But it was very deliberate and intentional in not doing that because the act of self-authoring is actually assessing a framework or method and considering it in your own context and life and not needing to be led or limited by the examples or stories of others. Um, so there was quite a, a strong intention in that. And, and like yourself, a lot of people have shared with me that they've really appreciated that, that different style. And in the group work that I do in this space, I also don't get people to chat about it in groups and chat about their personal stories there is huge value in that and people can get that in a range of other offerings that, that others have out there. However, I find that there's a huge power in getting people to actually do that work as individuals yeah. and then, of course, have that interaction with myself. And, and the way I work through that interaction is that anyone who individually puts a question, the answer will go to everyone or the reflection more than the answer will go to everyone. So there will be a group learning, but it won't be this 
more personal aspect. It'll be a less, a more impersonal, as in I'm not getting involved in your story. Yeah. And when's it launch? When's it launching? End of March next year. Lovely. Lovely. And then yeah. and where where can people find out information about that now? So alisoncameron.com. Yeah, okay. Alison with one L too, yes? With one L and and it's the Academy tab there. And I'll be starting to to share a little bit more about it. Jeez, I'll tell you um, what. It's spooky, you know, because I just launched softly this week my Human Manager Academy, which is a little bit different to that. It's it's very much an online self-paced piece on leading self and, and leading yes. in the team. And um I think people need to be given the chance to do it at some sort of pace that works for them rather than you need to be done by this time because we've got this program coming up and you'll be in the room with people. I love that. Geez, you've given me so much. And I always have this question about some tools and tips for the workplace, but I I think that then sort of goes into story, which is a bit against where you're coming from. So I think I'm going to pass on that one today. I think there's lots that you've already given us, but what I want to get to is getting your take on this because I have a view, which is a very simple view that we notwithstanding there's so much complexity and complication in the world right now that you've only got to open up your phone and Google the news or look at the front 10 pages of the newspaper to go, shit, there's a lot going on. I still have a view, though, that we we tend to want to get into the complicated and complex spaces pretty quickly. When at times if we got above the noise of that and then looked down, we would see some systems and patterns that, that if we went, oh, that's pretty simple. It just it looks like Alison and Mark aren't talking to each other. Yeah. What, what could we do about that? What are your thoughts on that idea that perhaps we try and head towards the complicated and the complex in favour of staying in the, maybe the simple? I think I would reframe it from simple maybe to human nice. and common sense. Because actually common sense, it looks simple when it's staring you in the face but I love that quote, common sense is the sense that's least common. Yep. I think that's so true right now on, in, in so many of our communities that we're not rising above to see the patterns. So the complexity that we get caught up in, in and you've sworn so I can swear, is the bullshit complexity Yep. of all of the stuff that we've created the, the unnecess- or the systems that maybe served a purpose that now just are like the spaghetti of an organization that are all tangled up and keep us trapped. And so I I think we actually turn away from the simple because it's hard. It requires sacrifice. It requires me putting the mirror on myself and being responsible. I can't then blame, oh, it's the system or it's this out there. And even if it is that out there, I have to actually say, okay, I actually, even if it's 1%, I can own 1% of my interaction with this or how I face into it. So there's there's a, a level of responsibility in facing common sense usually that I think the complex, we don't actually face the real complexity, which is our own inner workings. And we avoid that by looking at the complexity out there that that perhaps we have less control over. I love it. I am um, I'm also happy that I've got at least the human word in the podcast title simply practically <laughs> human because again I've said this many times Alison this is a learning laboratory for me. Yeah. You know over 200 episodes now and and the learning that I get and you know the spaghetti of the organization maybe thinking about it as human rather than simple and then the common sense piece is 
This week's felt a bit like this for me. I play a bit of golf, and when I play with yeah. people that are better than me, I tend to play better myself. And I've got my sense today is I'm playing with a better golfer here right now. And yesterday I had another experience with Michael and Maxime, and it was like I came off going, "Thank goodness I wasn't the best golfer in the pack because I didn't. I wouldn't have learned anything. I would have just played scrappy, scrippy, shitty golf. But today I've learned. So thank you for." for taking me to another level today. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. It's such a joy to spend some time with you. And by the way, just reflecting on the better golf a bit, and I understand where you were coming from with that, is to be in a learning space. I think we all can be in that space all the time. And that's that space of humility and that space of curiosity that's so fundamental to more humane leadership. And I'd also like just to also share with people who are listening how polluting comparison is. Yes. And that all of us are here to express something unique, that if you look at, you know, each tree will have be different, you know, each animal, <laughs> each human being is here to express something unique. And our job in this lifetime is to find out what that is. And then express that to the best of our ability. And even coming back to the question you didn't ask about the workplace, we tend to think of work through this model of career. And career, you know, again, the etymology of career is about like moving fast. So it's got that kind of sense of urgency and we're getting somewhere. But if we go back to words like profession, profession the etymology, we go back to, I think it's the Latin profess, to profess one's faith in something. So we come back to that sense of purpose and dedication to or professing faith in a purpose that's important to us. Or then vocation, and I think it's vocare or, or something like that. I'm yep. not great yep. on my Latin, which is about a calling, Yeah, to have some kind of a sense of calling. And I think most of our ills in organizational life would be resolved if if instead of looking at it through the lens of career, we start to bring back the root of the words profession and vocation and start to look at my my job is always to find what my calling is and find a way to express that. And whether that's creating the most beautiful cappuccino for my customers at the cafe, or whether it is creating the most dynamic, creative ecosystem in the organization I'm leading for more people to discover a sense of vocation. That's something I think we all can embrace. And when we embrace more and more of our own sense of calling, that need to compare and contrast gets released. Mm. And as we release that, we actually step more into learning from the world around us as well. I don't know if that makes sense. No, absolutely makes sense. I love how you, you know, the etymology of the words. I love that. I, it was interesting when I talked to the guys yesterday about provocation. Yeah. The origins of the word are about to bring forward. Yeah. Whereas people will be like, oh, provocation. Oh, shit. That sounds negative to start with. But it's like, no, we're just trying to bring some things forward that are there. And and I think yeah. we all need to do that because if we, if we step into our calling, which I have a great sense you have, I'd like to think that I've – started that process as well is that you'll start to 
unpack that sort of stuff and you'll start to look at words differently, perhaps to what you might do in the workplace. So thank you for sharing. Hey, just to finish off, so alisoncameron.com? Yes. Okay, 1L. We can get the book there as well? You can get the book there. You can also get it on most online retailers. You can nice. get the audio book on Audible as well and various other audio book places. Yeah. And feel free to follow on LinkedIn. I've been pretty quiet on there, there in recent months. Yep. However, uh, you'll start to see some more articles coming out again. Did you well. did you do the audible version of your book? Did you do the I reading? I did. How, yeah, how was I did. that for you? It was exhausting. Mm. Just the talking for so long. I really enjoyed it. And um, I, I think the reason I enjoyed it was I broke it up over a period of a, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, just doing a little bit at a time. Have you got the audio book of yours done? I no. haven't because um, I've just been too lazy and I started to do a bit of reading and it was exhausting and I, I must get to do it, but I just, you know what, I'm avoiding it. I'm saying there are other yeah. things that are more important and I'm just avoiding it. And people are like, we want to hear your voice because when we read your book, yeah. it actually sounds like you. Now we just want yes. to hear the bogan. We want the bogan tones as well, which will really <laughs> bring, help out. Bring them in, Mark. <laughs> oh, look, I, I, I actually think it only took two weeks. Yep. And if you break it up into, say, you know, an hour maximum, yep. 90 minutes a day, uh, it tends to work pretty well. I love it. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to make a resolution way before the 31st because I don't like resolutions that I'll get it done in 2023. I'm also going to say this. Today feels like I've been to a cognitive gym for a cognitive workout, and it's been like a really – it's been a good cognitive workout for me. So thank you for your generosity, for your humanity in the way that you share, and um, and I really do hope we get to catch up human to human at some stage in uh, in the new year. Thank you very much, Alison. Thanks so much, Mark. Take care. As I mentioned in the um, episode today, and I, I use golf here as the, I guess, the basis of the story was that whenever you get to play golf, if you're into golf, by the way, you get to play golf with somebody or a group who are of a lower handicap than you, therefore better, more consistent than you. I um, think about my brother-in-law, Rob, with that. It sort of spurs you on to try a little bit harder and to keep up. And I don't know if I was trying to keep up today. I was actually trying to absorb like that word that uh, Alison used to re refer to the way she was absorbing values from her grandfather and grandmother on her mum's side, that just trying to absorb some of what was going on today in order for me to improve. And I think that was a real big theme for me today. And I hope it was for you as well, that just understanding the the way that Alison can describe things, explain things, um, even throw the question back to you as the listener today to, to write some things down around, you know, why are we in so much need at the moment of some more humane and soulful leadership in the world? Incredible, incredible to sit there and get a bit goosebumpy as I do at times listening to someone. The emotional story about her grandparents and the challenges they faced to um, escape Nazi Germany and, and hide out as well in, in different places, Amsterdam being one after World War II and finding their way here to Australia and how they really helped her to absorb values and um, and hearing that emotion in her voice at the time was uh, incredible. Being diagnosed with a mental illness at 13 or 14, which was really a spiritual emergence and, and how that relates to how we're always trying to label things and put people into boxes and couldn't quite work Alison out. So therefore she must have had a mental illness and she was institutionalised for a while, which I can only imagine at that age would have been um, horrific. I like the idea of the student of human consciousness and we need to become 
students of human consciousness and perhaps less be students of the system or the educational system that kids find themselves imposed on at the moment. The entomology of words was interesting. Sacrifice was an interesting one. And in change, you need to be clear on what you are willing to sacrifice and getting back to that idea of fear of loss and value of gain. And we're a, we're a loss-averse species. So we're, we're really, really worried about change. And even though we might talk it up, uh, we look for the comfort of things staying the same. Which brings me to the being wary of the organisational spaghetti and getting tangled up in in that spaghetti. Just imagine that when, you, when you're lifting that cooked spaghetti out of a bowl and you just look at it and it's such a tangle and how do we get out of that comparison and watching out for how comparison can pollute us. And I really love this last point when we talked about the simple and the practical and the complicated and complex that Alison's suggesting we should substitute simple with the word human and tie it in with common sense as well. So perhaps the big thing there is that maybe changing some of the language is a good way to go. And then she talked about the bullshittery of complexity as well. Uh, I found that amazing. Absolutely check out Alison's book, Leadership for the New Millennium, and the academy that she's launching in, uh, in March next year. You can get the book wherever you want it. You can get audio or audible copies. You can get hard copies from all the good places, plus also via Alison at her website at Alison with one L, Cameron.com. Hey, if you love this one, why not rate it five stars? Leave us a little note about what you loved about it. Uh, certainly for me, I loved it that it really started to challenge me at a cognitive level about where I was at. If you liked it, and if you think others will like it, share it with them. Get them to subscribe as well. Subscribe to the podcast. Um, you're going to continue to hear from some great human beings. This is a great one to take you into the end of the year. I really believe that. So have a listen. And as I always say, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for 2022, and we'll see you again in 2023.